From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. My name is Marion Casey, and I'm coming from New York University, where I teach Irish and Irish-American history as part of one of the university's international houses, Glucksman Ireland House, which is now nearly 25 years old, and we teach undergraduate and graduate students. Well, aside from my, my knowledge of DuPont and the Brandywine from Margaret Mulroney's book, which I do use in my graduate teaching, I'm revising a manuscript for publication, and one of the chapters is on uh, Irish products, or the value of the word Irish in the marketplace. So I came to see the Seagram collection and um, two reports in Ernest Dichter's papers. And today in the library, I'm working on um, the... Uh, Ireland at some of the world's fairs, where especially 1904 in St. Louis, where they showcased uh, products of Irish industry. They had to get the permission of the British. <laughs> but it was organized by a group of Irish-American businessmen in, in St. Louis. And there was a historical segment uh, or section organized by Irish-Americans in New York. Um, so the financing and the impetus is coming out of Irish-America the products are being shipped over from Ireland with the permission of the British. And they had a very elaborate um, Irish village in, in 04. And there was one, in, yes, in Chicago in uh, 93, 1893 as well. 93 might have been prompted by um, the Countess of Aberdeen, who at that time was um, promoting the revival of Irish industries, particularly lace making, for example as a way to um, foster employment in, in sort of poorer, poorer parts of rural Ireland. You know, so it had a philanthropic dimension to it. It's also part of that period of time where we had what we call the Irish Renaissance or the Gaelic Revival. So they're reviving the Irish language and music and dance and industries, etc. I guess the theme is the commercialization of ethnicity. And I'm looking at the Irish as one of the earliest examples of how this was done. Ireland has an image of itself and of what is Irish and it runs headlong into an already established concept of what is Irish in the American marketplace. So there's a sort of a tension between the two. And you see it especially in, um, in alcohol uh, promotions, for example. One of the oldest Irish exports is um, uh, whiskey and particularly the one with um, name recognition and Irish association that is old is Jemison, which is a Dublin distillery. And uh, Jemison's marketing was uh, quite like Guinness's. It's the name, the name, and they had uh, particular trademarks, which um, uh, Guinness's had the Irish harp on it, Jemison's was only its name, the signature, I believe. But I saw an example yesterday in the archives of um, the use of a leprechaun to promote Jemison, which was unheard of for like 200 years until it's trying to, when Seagram's is trying to bring it in in the American marketplace, they're trying a number of things and shamrocks and leprechauns begin to make their appearance.
use of Irish in quotes symbols to tap into some kind of a a um, like a, it's used as a trope. You know what I mean? It, it's used as a trope for since the middle of the nineteenth century. So by the time you get to Lucky Charms, it's established. Things like Disney's movie Darby O'Gillan's Little People gave an extra push from the late 1950s and uh, so the leprechaun sort of pushes out um, the shamrock in some ways in the 60s and 70s you get that you see that more the trademark for Guinness and Sons Arthur Guinness and Sons which was for it's an 18th century um, brewing company in Dublin they make Guinness stout or porter that used the um, an ancient Irish harp on its symbol, which is the the official symbol of Ireland even today. The government of Ireland's note paper has a, a harp on it. So that's the only use of um, uh, a symbol to sell alcohol, traditionally, uh, until Seagram's comes in. They try things, elements that America had been cultivating from about um, in the 1930s, we'll say. So you get, you're getting two forces coming together to sell products. One is genuine, so to speak, and the other is not. Um, tea is a, is a thing in Ireland, a big thing in Ireland. Irish breakfast tea is a um, variation on English breakfast tea, and it is a very a more contemporary phenomena. However, in the early years of Irish independence, we'll say the 19... Uh, 1918, 1919, that's the Irish War of Independence, then you get this, the Civil War period after 1921. So in that period, when you have a heightened sense of Irish nationalism, you do get a kind of a bi-Irish movement in which you do see Irish tea marketed, but just Irish tea, not Irish breakfast tea. There is a, there is a flavor distinction. I haven't done enough on, on the teas to know how intentional that was. Certainly, it's to set it apart from English breakfast tea. You mentioned Ernst Dichter. Mm -hmm. How does he apply to your research? Um, he was hired by uh, United Distillers, which is the combination of the four major Irish whiskey producers, post-World War II whiskey producers. Three of them had longevity, including Jemison. Long, long, you know, dating way back in the American market. But um, after World War II, there was competition with Scotch, so uh, they decided to pool their resources together. And um, uh, Dichter proposed a, uh, a marketing study, and they, they hired him. And the report is really fascinating on just how you would pitch Irish whiskey in, in the American market to distinguish it from Scotch. Um, and uh, particularly at a time when um, drinks like whiskey were kind of losing ground to vodka and rum. He's interesting because I don't think he had a whole background on how one particular angle had been used for a very long time, which is to position Irish whiskey as made with all natural ingredients and as a genuine Irish product or authentic. You know, America tended to like blended whiskeys, a combination of different types. Mm -hmm. So this is just pure. And you drank it straight, not with any cola or anything in it. So, you know, it's like the, the real deal. Yeah.
And, uh, you know, he talks a little bit about how to, um, how branding is important, not to blur the unique identities of the four labels that the distillers were producing. So there's um, Jemison, Powers, Patty, and Tullamore do that he's talking about. And this is the early 60s, I believe, he's working on this. And, and they, he determined that Tullamore Dew went down better with um, women um, who were not traditionally whiskey drinkers, but they liked the name. It was kind of mystical, Tullamore Dew. <laughs> Actually, there's very little here on Guinness oh. at all. Yeah. And it's also an acquired taste, stout or porter. It's more a, um, historically, a working class drink whereas whiskey is more high-end. And that's the other thing that Ireland tended to market abroad um, in specific niches that where there was no competition. Jemison, basi- Irish whiskey basically had no competition in that niche. Bleak, China, also is a niche. Waterford Crystal is another niche where they go. Yeah. Um, Guinness is way out on its own. And it for a long time, its biggest problem was uh, imitations and people using their label on fake stout yeah, infringement of the of the mm-hmm. trademark was their big thing oh, wow. in the American market. Uh-huh. Well, they weren't the only ones. A lot of stuff uh, because the word Irish, like the word Quaker, <coughs> had a um, a cachet to it, and in in certain niche markets meant high quality, high end, a high end product of quality. Um, it all of them were vulnerable to imitations, and so there's a lot of court cases about this. I mean, the people sponsoring the World's Fair, say in St. Louis, for example, um, were interested in um, bringing Ireland into the modern world, and re- you know, d- transforming its reputation as a country which was uh, poor and rural and um, plagued by emigration into something that uh, could compete on the world stage, even in modest, in, even in a modest way. They wanted to see Ireland succeed. And the, the American dimension would be the choice of things they brought, or the, the physical plant they built in St. Louis included, for example, a reconstruction of Blarney Castle. Now, Blarney Castle is, um, is floating around in a lot of different areas in American popular culture uh, in the, from the 19th century, m- mostly in um, tourism. So it's a familiar thing. It also appears in uh, early, early cinema, for example, in America. This idea of that you, on part of your grand tour, you stop in Ireland, you kiss the Blarney Stone, you get the gift of eloquence, and then you go on to London and Paris, right? So they built that in St. Louis. So that would have been something familiar to Americans, right? But it's one of like hundreds of castles in Ireland. Well, St. Louis is a fascinating um, World's Fair because they built, you know, the streets of Shanghai and they built the Tyrolean Alps as well. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's identifying a country with a specific um, image, right? And so Ireland's is uh, um, ruins. So they had Cormac's Chapel, which is a, a an early Christian. Um, site uh, in Ireland and they had um, and Blarney Castle. There are associations with um, a people and a place um, that basically are driven by um, 
in the American market by how lucrative they are. And Riverdance was extremely lucrative for everybody who was involved. And it's, um, and it has, the spin-offs are, there's a lot of parodies of Riverdance, which is also, we I found that in the 19th century too. How do we get from the shamrock, which is a, a real botanical leaf of a plant, which is associated with a, a Catholic saint, how do we get from that to the marshmallow and Lucky Charms? Lucky Charms is in its way a derivative of something that was actually real and authentic in the 19th century. This is phony in the 20th century. And the same is happening. Riverdance, the, the original eight minute piece that inspired this traveling show was danced and choreographed by two Irish-American champions, one from Chicago, one from New York, who were um, masters of the tradition, and that enabled them to push the boundaries and kind of blur it with modern dance, and um, that took everybody's breath away, and the show was built around it, and, um, and then all the parodies come after that. And they're pretty powerful. They've crowded out of your mind any other associations with Ireland and the Irish in a way, right? Yeah. They're quite powerful. And, you know, the, the ability of um, new communications uh, methods, be it cinema in, at the turn of the 20th century or the internet at the turn of the 21st, keep these things alive in new forms and going into going on to future generations as well. So more people get exposed to that than would have gotten exposed to the original authentic. It's a very interesting phenomena. And you see it happening now with um, Cinco de Mayo, for example, is mm -hmm. getting heavily commercialized. Um, and the process is an old one, old one as to seeing how, you can, how, can, how a group can be positioned for profit. And yeah. the Irish sort of came first in that time. They're one of the they're one of the oldest groups that uh, uh, oldest immigrant groups in the country, European immigrant groups uh, that came in large numbers. Um, Germans are the other group, um, and they are less because they have a, a very different political history in the twentieth century. They are not, and they're and there's a language a language issue as well, so that the Irish. Um, were easy to uh, to exploit, if you will, in the nineteenth century, because you know you could understand Irish culture a bit faster. So I found something in the archives. I thought I would tell you this, just tell you about. There's a very, very rare pamphlet in the Seagram collection, and it's rare uh, because Jemison uh, Irish whiskey hired a very um, cutting-edge Irish artist to illustrate it, and his name is Harry Clark. And he did two pamphlets for Jemison, one in 24 and one in 1925. So you have the 1924 one. Last year at auction, the 25 one went for nearly $2,000. And um, there are only, according to WorldCat, there are only six libraries in the world that have a copy of the 24 one. So, and Hagley's not listed. So that's number seven now. And they're, they're very striking, very striking and very modern. He, all, he was uh, involved in the 
promotion of the arts and crafts movement in Ireland, and he um, was also a stained glass artist as well as a book illustrator. Yeah. We have something very rare, actually. Oh, it's wonderful here. It's wonderful here. Yeah, yeah. I haven't even had a chance to walk the grounds yet because I've been so busy in the archive and the library. Here, um, there's some beautiful scrapbooks in the Seagram collection. The stand-in scrapbooks that are there are. New, a volume and a half on Irish whiskey labels that are just beautiful to look at. Some of them are from um, bottlers in England and Scotland, and some of them for local bottlers in Ireland. And then the ones I'm interested in are the ones that are bottled in the United States, so New York or New Jersey. I found a few. That was really interesting. What other collection did I use? Yeah, I think it was the Wawa Public Relations Files. Um, because they distributed, you know, I talk about derivatives, so th they marketed non-alcoholic uh, Irish creams for your coffee, mm -hmm. which are, it's, it's about uh, 30 years after the introduction of Irish coffee made with whiskey in the United States. So it's been, it's been, um, it's been wonderful and really pleasant to work at Hagley, just really pleasant. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.